Welcome to Beneath the Wing. Just like air passing over the wing of an aircraft provides lift, the people we meet can also give us lift in life by sharing their stories of strength and success, connecting us all. Beneath the Wing explores the stories of those connected with the Minnesota Air National Guard's 133rd Airlift Wing with a little humor and learning along the way. I'm your host, Wing Command Chief Mark Legvold. Joining me today on Beneath the Wing is Senior Airman Andrew Vogt. Andrew works in our Security Forces Squadron, where she's been since she started at the 133rd. She's a Senior Airman, and you came in and joined us in 2019. Is that right? Mm, well, enlisted 2018, but came and actually worked with all of your lovely faces in 2019. Got it. So went to basic training and had a whole bunch of fun there. And uh, you've been a member of our wing and have been a pretty solid performer with us for a good long time. So thanks for joining me on Beneath the Wing. Thanks. <laughs> so let's talk about that day when you came out here, met with the recruiter. What brought you to the Air National Guard? You know, uh, military is something that had been on my mind for a really long time. And I think at that point in my life, I was just like, you know, let's do it. I felt like I was kind of... A little bit in a rut in my life. At the time, I was flipping houses, and I was just like, you know, I'm having a hard time finding what kind of career is really calling to me. So I was like, hey, let's do the military. Put myself in a first responder role, and for the first time in my life, that first responder role has really clicked. So, so. at that time in your life, what was that time in your life? Because you weren't a spring chicken straight out of high school. No, I was old. <laughs> you were old. Um, I've been known to be a career bouncer. So, I mean, since I was a little kid, you know, I was doing construction stuff with my dad. I went to college for graphic design, did that for a hot minute, studied abroad, learned everything about photography, advertising, graphic design, um, worked in the kitchen in college. And actually, after college, I continued working in the kitchen, so I was a professional cook for about nine years, overlapped with starting to flip houses, uh, built my own business with my dad, made our own LLC. Uh, renovated houses over in North Minneapolis that were kind of rough and preserved all of the historical integrity. I'm sure that's a story we'll get into later. Probably. Um, yeah, started flipping houses, played football, which a lot of people here in the wing know, and then joined the military <laughs> wearing that hat, and then now I took EMT courses and I'm wearing that hat too. So, Is it hard for you to keep switching back and forth between because I know you're still doing a little bit of housework with your dad. Actually, recently um, we stopped doing that just because of the market. So I've been trying to get out here full-time for quite a while. Finally obtained a full-time spot uh, late April, so actually I've been sticking to that. Awesome. That's great. Congratulations. (laughs) You ready to settle down and make make the 133rd home? I wouldn't say settle down, but definitely found home. Awesome. What... uh, (laughs) Speaking of, of making it home, why did you choose security forces? It's a hard career. It is. Well, I didn't want an easy one. I liked the idea of a challenge. I've always wanted to be, you know, a cop or first responder in some sort. Um, honestly, when I first started talking to um, Sergeant Sprick and recruiting, security forces wasn't really on my mind. I was looking at Well, first, it was a slow process because I was like, all right, let's see if I qualify. So I did the ASVAB just because I was like, "Eh, I don't know how I'm going to score on it. Scored pretty well. And then um, I was like, all right, let's go to MEPS and do medical. Went through MEPS, and then it was all good. This was like, you know, within a two-month period. So finally I'm like, Siren Sprick, you know, let's get this show on the road. Let's find some careers. Whole long list of careers I was looking at. Loadmasters. Originally, I was looking at fire, but we had gotten rid of our fire unit. I heard. Yeah. Um, looking at a Aeromed, a bunch of other ones. And then it came up security forces. I was walking through the hallway on my way to go, I don't know, just going outside of the building. And there were two airmen trying to stuff each other into a locker. They were small lockers, too. They were small airmen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fair enough. But I talked to them for a second, and Sergeant Brick was like, hey, let's come back and talk to Chief Legvold for a little while after we're done with, you know, wherever we were going. 
came back and uh, I talked to you. I talked to Sergeant Yan and um, actually Sergeant Lynn Olkides when she was still around. Mm-hmm. You were the first three I talked to, and I was like, oh, I know what I'm joining, security forces. I knew it right away. Glad, <laughs> glad you found a good home. <laughs> All because two people were trying to stuff each other into a locker. It's, it's part, of the, part of the show down there, isn't it? If that's not the most security forces thing I've ever heard, then I don't know what it's, is. It's right up there. It's right up there. <laughs> We're so, fun, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> we got bigger lockers. Eh, a little bit. A little bit. Hey, There's taller. So when you went through basic training, you already had all these hats that you've worn in mm-hmm. life, from flipping burgers to flipping houses, right? Uh, graphic like design. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all this stuff, all these worldly experiences, you're not... You're not the youngest person that shows up. To be, were you the oldest person in your flight? Actually, I wasn't. There was one girl that was 35 who ended up being our dorm chief. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So you had another old timer. I was in the top three, though. Okay. <laughs> How was that experience? I mean, I've asked this of people that have come in um, a little longer into their life when they start a new career. Mm-hmm. And you you said you're kind of you've been bouncing. Um, but how was that experience of going through that kind of? basic training indoctrination here's all of our values and our norms and our rituals and get in line i mean i had my expectations of what it was going to be like and i was nervous like anyone else was was gonna be it was it was new i didn't know what exactly was gonna happen it was like one big secret and me being me of course i did a ton of research before going in so i knew what to expect i knew what kind of like demeanor i needed to have i'm old enough i'm already have like that discipline um but my reaction when I got there wasn't, oof, this is structured. It was, oof, I am old. I had easily a decade on everybody else in there. I went in at 28, and there were 17, 18, 19-year-olds there. So I think no matter what age you are, everybody grows up in basic training a little bit in some way or another. Mm-hmm. So it's just I had grown up differently in some life experiences, but and we were in a way, we're all on the same level. I'm, obviously, I was, you know, annoyed by being with 53 other females in one big bay. But, mm-hmm. uh, no, I think I grew up just as much as anyone else did there. Yeah. Uh, what was the, do you think, was the biggest challenge that you had to overcome when you were in basic training? Um I mean, everybody has to overcome a challenge, whether it's inside of their mind mm-hmm. or the physical challenges, um, the, the mental and academic challenges. What was the biggest challenge that you faced down there that made you grow the most at that time? Um, before military, I've always, I mean, I still am. I've been wildly independent. So I think I went in with a very lone wolf mentality, like I can just, do it myself if I need to. I'll hide, I'll bear down, I'll get it done. That's not the case. You can't do that there. Mm-mm. So I got thrown into some teaching positions. I was their academic leader, so I had to study everyone up for the EOC, you know. Um, and there's a lot of team environments, whether I like, liked them or not. So I had to kind of get rid of that lone wolf mentality and be like, I need these people whether I want to or not. So I kicked to that mentality. And it definitely carried over, especially in tech school and coming through here. Uh, I think, you know, that team and family environment has definitely stuck with me. And since then, I think I've really thrived in that realm, being like, I'm not in this alone. No one's in this alone. You can reach anywhere you need to for help. And everyone's here going to have your, everyone, I'm sorry, everyone here is going to have your back. Yeah. Are you one of those people that now is moving into the point in your career where you're starting to have the uh, the younger troops back and and kind of be that role model within the within the squadron within the workplace Mm -hmm. i have and i'm the first one to be like hey come to me if you have any questions any help and i'm i'll be fully transparent with them like i don't want to lead anybody blind i want to make sure that they don't have just that lone wolf mentality that i have yeah that this is a team environment so the team environment you were already used to a team environment where people kind of relied on one another in your oh, yeah. professional football career yeah and i still remember the day that you enlisted you, you might not but i it was striking oh, no, I to me because like half of your football team and your coach came man my coach came for the day that you you enlisted with us mm-hmm. 
what was the having never been to a professional women's soccer or football game, American football, not European football. Um, <laughs> not a lot of people follow women's football. What was the appeal for you with that, with the sport? Actually, it's kind of a funny story how I joined football. Okay. Um, I was walking around the state fair with my friend, uh, doing what you do at the state fair, tasting some beverages. And I was actually talking to the roller derby uh, booth, which are actually right next to each other. And I was about to walk out, just kind of, you know, lollygagging around. And then the team owner actually comes over from the booth. He's like, hey, you ever played football before? And I was just like, what? No. What's this? I had never even heard of the Vixen until this moment. Uh-huh. So they talked to me about it, and I put my little name in, like, the send me info about tryouts thing. And then I went. It had been a while since I had played sports. I had a, I was going to play in college, got busy with college, and I'm not playing for several years. So I was like, well, I guess maybe I'll try and be on the team again. And to my shock, I made the team. So I just, just kind of rode the wave on that one. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I hadn't even heard of them until the state fair. What was the schedule like for, because, you know, you think professional athlete, you think they are paid to be good at their sport. Mm. So that's all they do. Yeah, we had to pay to play. Okay. So you had to pay to play. And they say it's only three nights a week for practice, but you you do a lot more than that. It's it's every day practically like you're going to practice three nights a week sometimes there's another optional practice if you really want to get good you're studying all the time you're hanging out together it's it was a very it became my entire life it became you know football was pr- almost at the top and like football and work were very close to each other i spent mm-hmm. probably more time at football than i did work you were flipping houses at the time yes so working construction all day and then going to a football practice, that had to take a toll. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it wasn't easy, but I managed. Well, what position did you play? Uh, I was more of a utility player. Um, my rookie year, I started out as a starting uh, defensive back, Okay. which was super fun. And then I kind of went over to the offensive side as a wide receiver. And then the last year I played, I took a, well, this year off and last season because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, offense and then kick returner, which is my favorite. If I could be a kick returner all day, I would. Running full speed at somebody else that's running full speed at you. Absolutely. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I think I'd be broken. <laughs> Well, I kind of was, so uh, that's why I took a year off. <laughs> but are you uh, are you back at it now? Actually, uh, no, I'm not. I took this season off. I'm not sure what the future holds. I actually uh, took some time to be their sideline medical team. Okay. Got my EMT and started doing some sideline with them. Right so, away. giving my body a break uh, now that I have a career where uh, your physical health really matters. Kind of rearranged some priorities there. For sure. Yeah. Um, the schedule. Did you get to travel a lot with that? We did actually. Um, we I went personally. I went to two national championships. Unfortunately, lost both. One was in Atlanta, and another one was in I think it was Charlotte, okay. North Carolina. All right. Um, otherwise, we've gone to Colorado. We've gone to Dallas, um, Kansas City. And, I mean, then like the tri-state. So we gone to Iowa, Wisconsin, those kind of things. Um, when did they go this year? One year we were supposed to go to Boston. California came to us. So you, you can go anywhere in this country. What a great opportunity to travel with a fun group of people and get hurt and yeah. still have fun together, right? Oh, you put 50 of us on a Greyhound and it gets wild. Oof, duh. <laughs> that, that's what we say in Minnesota. Oof, duh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet it was a heck of a lot of fun, though. It was, it was. Yeah. Um, so... You, uh, on top of this, like we said, you were working with your dad flipping houses. Mm-hmm. And when you're working, it's the family business, your own LLC, you're managing more than you're doing a lot of the work, or are you doing a lot of the work alongside? We actually probably did 
most of the work, at least in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, there are some things like plumbing, electrical, we have to hire up because that needs a city inspection, and yeah. Minneapolis is picky. Um, but no, we did mo all the dirty work we did ourselves, all the demo, all of the kitchen cabinets, and installing everything we can just to, you know, save money. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Now Flooring. Housing is so expensive now. It's it's tough. Well, it's not that the housing is expensive. It's expensive to buy, but it sells really high. Oh, it's just for sure. that the materials were so expensive like disproportionately expensive yeah so that's where you were going to lose out so when you're working like that you had to learn some hard skills in managing other people mm. and i'm sure that the folks that you worked with weren't necessarily the easiest not always there was anything from people weren't accountable or people weren't doing it right or um there was language barriers too. Like there was all kinds of challenges to deal with. So I mean, you just had to be, you had to be flexible. Was it hard for you as a woman to manage a, what would nor people would normally consider sort of a a male dominated career? Um, yeah, there you, was a lot of times. That? There were some times that I had to prove myself. Um, a lot of the, it was more subcontractors. Like my dad and I, we've been doing this our whole life. Mm -hmm. um, subcontractors, you know, sometimes it was hard to be taken seriously. One, because I look like I'm 17. And two, I'm a female. So they didn't really want to listen to me and they would just kind of go straight to my dad. But, you know, I was in charge too. But um, eventually, you know, we started using the same contractors and I kind of, it was a lot of effort to, you know, build respect and let them know, hey, I know what I'm doing. I know what we need to do. You can listen to me. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just, it was a frustrating road to try and be um, seen as, you know, a boss type or like a manager. But I got there. There wasn't like any kind of formula I did. I just kind of kept proving myself and doing what I was doing. Was that model work well here? Yeah. Okay. Cause you, I, I mean, never really had to prove myself as a female here, though. I interesting. Just, no, not once. They don't care what you are as long as you know how to at least try to do your job well and put forth a lot of effort. Well, it doesn't one, matter what you are. One of the things that we try really hard to mm -hmm. make sure is a part of the, the culture uh, where, we're, where we're at. But, but that has taken work and a lot of time has had to pass. The skills that you brought, though, in having to struggle and work through that, in, in your own words, your, your competence, your sense of... of surety in what you were doing and then convincing them i'm sure that's helped you become more successful out here wearing the military uniform definitely is that a skill or is that more of a art yes mm -hmm. <laughs> it's both um there is an art to it like you it's a, it's a skill that turns into an art okay. um it's something that you definitely have to work on i mean you can be born with it to a certain extent, but you gotta show effort. You have to articulate that you are willing to be, that you're willing to bend, that you're willing to learn. Um, and the art is actually thinking that way. You can act one way and think another, but for those two things to align is the art. Mm -hmm. It's a good way of putting that. Yeah. Do you, um, Part of the art of like managing yourself, managing your career, and just kind of growing and developing, you've had to take a lot of chances. Um, doing a little research on, hey, let's get ready to, to interview you for the podcast. I, <laughs> I know that you are somebody that is not necessarily afraid of taking chances in the career and learning new things. You've pushed yourself to get your EMT. You're getting interested in the emergency management um, and emergency response side of, mm -hmm. of where you're at. How do you find those things that interest you and then take the next step to actually engage in those? Honestly, sometimes it's uh, based off of things that happen in my life. So um, a little bit of a sad story on this one. So part of the reason I wanted to become, especially a cop, um, when I was gone at basic training i got a letter from one of my best friends that was deployed her sister um a, someone had came into her house and sexually assaulted her 
uh, violently pointed a gun at her, and there was a whole thing. So I found that out, and I just broke down. But it's horrible knowing that that happened to someone, and you weren't in any kind of position to be able to help them or anyone like that for that matter. So that kind of pushed me to be like, I feel like I have the capability and the willpower to want to help people like that. So that pushed me to really want to be in a first responder role, to whether I'm going to be uh, protecting someone as a police officer or helping someone medically as an EMT. Um, I want to learn as many first responder roles as possible so I can help and protect as many people as I can because nobody deserves anything like that to happen to them. And if unfortunately it does, I want to be in a position where I can help them get the best outcome they possibly can. Taking care of people that need care and mm -hmm. helping those that are helpless in their moment of need. Mm -hmm. That's a calling, isn't it? It only took 28 years. Well, <laughs> I'm glad you got to where you are. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a heart, that heart, that heart of taking care of people who need care and serving those who need to be served in their most critical moment. Is that something that is has been eroded from our emergency responders? Is that something that is missing? There's a lot going on with law enforcement, fully funding law enforcement, putting funds toward the right thing in law enforcement, mm -hmm. and putting that energy and effort into a different aspect of public service, public safety, and, and yeah. law enforcement. Is that sense of empathy missing? I think... Yes and no. That's it's not something you can teach. That's that's a personality trait you're born with. That uh, for me, I have always almost cared about others than I've cared about myself. I will put if someone's struggling, I will immediately put them above me and do what I can to help them. Um, as far as cops now, it's it's hard to say. I've met many police officers who do truly want to help their community, but above them is kind of where things get clouded. So it, I feel like maybe there's less people that do have that trait going to be in that field. And I think there's just maybe less people willing to be in that field. Do you think it's, do you think, obviously the fix to this is more complex than you and I can come up with just yeah. sitting on a podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, do you think it starts with just a heightened sense of, of empathy? Mm -hmm, I think it does. And judging that when people come into the career field, they're not in here for their own personal power. They're in here for, like you said, um, to help people in their hour where they're... Yeah, it's all close. about your intention. Yeah, for sure. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, we've just rounded out of... of um, We've rounded out of uh, Pride Month mm. in June, and you're very involved in the LGBTQ community. You're serving the military this weekend at an event, at a Pride event. What got you involved? Uh, as far as, like, the military was? Yeah. Um, <laughs> actually, Jordan over in the 55th, she's actually a friend of mine. She, one day, she just asked me, she's like, hey, do you want to speak on this LGBT panel for the diversity inclusion initiative. And I was just like, sure, I'll do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> and it was that easy. I'm like, hey, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. It sounds fun. Well, and so you sat on a panel of um, several different men and women and just basically answered some questions in an mm -hmm. open forum. It was myself, little baby senior airman, um, a few tech sergeants, and a couple commanders. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, Colonel Moore was alongside with me. Yep, part of our wing here. Uh, faced a lot of questions, answered. I, I know that you don't shy away from hard questions, and no. you have <laughs> you have no problem saying, yeah, that that question just doesn't apply. This is a this is a small part of what makes you you. Mm -hmm. Was it hard to just have that entire time dedicated to this small part of what makes you you? A little bit. Um, some things in the back of my head was that it was a little frustrating at times because I know, yes, it was like an LGBT specific event, but 
sometimes that many questions, it starts to make you feel like that's the only thing about you. And obviously that's not the case. I'm sure no one else there was felt that way. But it did get frustrating, but you just kind of got to get past it and be like, okay, this is a panel for a reason. This is for everyone else's knowledge. Yeah, so why why are those panels? What is everyone else's knowledge? Why, why is that important? Well, just knowing that all, all you really need is a sense of normalcy. Yeah. I mean, it's just familiarizing yourself with these people and knowing who they are, kind of what they've gone through, their background. It's a, it's a thing of getting to know your wingmen, or, I mean, soldiers as well, because both were there. Mm -hmm. It's just getting to know who's by your side. Yeah. Getting to know their background. Like, even if maybe you're too shy to ask them, there's this panel to kind of hear them talk about it. So you're not exactly the one, you know, being forward and asking the questions. You just kind of get to sit back and you get to take it in and just absorb this information that's just freely given to you by people who are willing to be that transparent. Yeah. When you came in to security forces, you were kind of struck by the, not struck, but you felt this sense of community and family and mm -hmm. togetherness. It had nothing to do with anybody's sexuality. It had nothing to do with anybody's gender. It's just the way we were. Mm -hmm. the way we are as a, as a family out out here so um, are we welcoming and is that what the out, outreach event that you're participating in this weekend is that why that's important so that we can have this big umbrella this big tent where everybody is welcome in our family and they feel that absolutely what we, I think there, there's a, there is a stigma out there that like oh no the military is you know anti-gay or like the don't ask don't tell thing but it's like if you come into our unit like no one cares we'll just have conversations like like normal they're not going to make a whole thing of it it's just you're gonna be normal i came don't in, be weird <laughs> yeah I, I, don't be weird you've said that to me a couple times just you know it's it's not hard just don't be weird and that kind of falls with with everybody i mean we're when all weird but we are I, some of us are more than you know weird than others um myself included when i came into the military i got asked are you gay and if i was i wouldn't have been allowed in and then it changed to we just aren't going to ask anymore and people could not live an authentic life in the military but we at mm -hmm. least wouldn't ask them openly to lie was that the right the wrong step in the right direction do you think the don't ask don't tell period boy i i don't know i mean that's that's before my time i never uh, fortunately i never had to deal with don't ask don't tell i think it's for don't ask don't tell i think the fact that like it's not something that should have mattered sure but the fact that people had to hide themselves or there would be repercussions was the, obviously the downside of that. So I think maybe the in, initial intentions were there, like, oh, it shouldn't matter, but then it got kind of reverse, reverse. Yeah. The, the troubling part that I saw with that time in our lives out here in the military was we were asking people to serve with integrity, mm -hmm. but telling them they couldn't have integrity if they wanted to continue serving. And now, everybody's open and it's, people can serve with integrity regardless of who they are. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, to me, it just seems like so much more of a healthy environment um, where- It is, especially, you know, for, for mental health. And I mean, that's even a current crisis out there, the mental health crisis. And even today, I think the military, it's getting, the military is getting better with it, but, but it's still an issue people are afraid to lose their jobs because of mental health and nobody wants to come forward and get help just because they're afraid of their career. And that should never be the case. If anything, you should be commended for getting a hold of your mental health, making yourself a better person, and just, you know, putting yourself first. Yeah. Because if you're not putting yourself first, then who, what good are you going to be? We, we, 
put our people through a lot in the military. Mm -hmm. I mean, we ask them to, at the drop of a hat or the drop of a beret, to <laughs> pick up everything and go to a different place in the country or go to a different place in the world mm -hmm. and do a very hard job and then come back and reassimilate with their family, with their friends, in their same social structures, um, in their same communities, and do that over and over and over again. And not only do it over again, but prepare for it. And I think you're absolutely right. It takes a mental and emotional toll on somebody. How do we get well when it comes to taking good care of our military members' um, mental health? What does mental wellness mean? And how um, do we get there? Mental wellness, I mean, it's up to the airmen first. You have to recognize that you do need help. Because if you don't recognize that, then it's honestly a lost cause. That's blunt, but it's true. Yeah. If you keep thinking, no, I don't need help, I'm fine, it's whatever, then no one's going to get through to you. You have to recognize that you need help or there's something that you need to change first within yourself before before anything before any progress happens you're part of a family structure in in mm -hmm. the military if somebody's not doing a good job recognizing that does your family pick up on that and are they helpful if they do i think i think they are i think uh I mean, everyone, people in the units, you know, people are close. Um, I think we can all recognize pretty well if another person is off, especially, you know, in security forces, we're a, a weapon-holding field. I think we can tell if another person isn't quite themselves, especially on shift. We see each other's same six faces, you know, every day. Mm -hmm. I can tell when someone's off or even if someone didn't get enough sleep. Like, you catch on to each other's isms, and once something is off, it, you know, Sends, puts up a flag. The, the thing that I have appreciated, one of the things that I appreciated so much about the career field in security forces, especially any emergency response organization, firefighting was no different. Mm -hmm. We not only would see that, but then we'd take the extra step and we'd ask and we'd poke a little bit because that's our brother, that's our sister. And mm -hmm. we could because people were safe in that family structure and we, we got good at asking those questions. Are you okay? No, seriously, you don't look right. Well, Are yeah, really I mean, you're okay? not just asking them as, like, oh, a supervisor or a military member. You're their friend. You're their family. Yeah. You hopefully genuinely care about them. And you can take them aside and just be like, hey, man, are, are you good? What's going on? Like, just having that transparency with someone is going to help, especially if someone is hard-headed, doesn't kind of doing that lone wolf thing, mm -hmm. um, doesn't think, you know, that they need help or anything. Having someone at least be transparent and genuinely there for them who you can open up to, that's probably the first step for them. First step, and it's a big one. It is a huge one. Yep, and I, th I think we do pretty well at that, or at least we, we get well at We get better and we do it on purpose, I think, mm -hmm. is, is one of those things that's, that's pretty fantastic about not serving, not necessarily serving in the career fields we have, but yeah. also serving in the military. Yeah, build relationships, they matter. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I've been talking with Senior Airman Andre Vogt, um, part of our Security Forces Squadron out here. We are going to take a short break and hear from our Yellow Ribbon Coordinator, and then we will come back. So stick around. Hello, my name is Nikki Todeshek, and I'm the Yellow Ribbon Support Specialist for the 133rd Airlift Wing. The transition from civilian to military life can be difficult for deploying airmen and the families of the Air National Guard. Support programs provided through the Yellow Ribbon Reintegration Program can help. Financial and family counseling, benefits briefings, and legal support are only some of the services we offer to support our military families. For more information on the Yellow Ribbon Reintegration Program here at the 133rd Airlift Wing, please contact Nikki Todeshek at 612-713-2057. Again, that's 612-713-2057. Welcome back to Beneath the Wing. I've been talking with uh, Senior Airman Andre Vogt of Security Forces Squadron, and over the break, uh, while Nikki was talking to us about yellow ribbons, she was sharing with me the story <laughs> on her transformation from being that lone wolf at basic training who was just going to get through it quietly and not bother anybody and not be noticed to a full-on member of that um, group of 50 women living in the dorm. 
So why don't you uh, <laughs> elaborate a little bit more on the story? It was a Saturday? No, it was a Sunday. Sunday, okay. So it was actually the very first Sunday that we were left to our own devices, which who knows if that was even a good idea. Anyway, so the first, like, first couple weeks, I didn't hardly say a word to anybody. I was like, I'm just going to keep it low, keep my head underground, just do my work, get it done, and get through this. Well, this might have been the same day where I decided to shut myself in my locker because was, everyone was just screaming. But I go over to the other bay, and there was this one girl who, she came in with one of those um, sew-in wigs. And it's on the bed. I look at it. At this point, I hadn't hardly talked to anybody. I put the wig on my head, this really long-haired wig, and I strut down the bay singing I'm Too Sexy for my shirt. Red Said Fred, by the way, was the name of the artist that performed that song. Ah. You're welcome. <laughs> Did you know all the words? I probably just made them up, but I knew the important part. There, there you um, go. But anyway, that was a lot of people's uh, real first impression of me. I went from being quiet and kind of salty looking to, uh, I, I don't even know what to call that. There's something about this woman that we can appreciate. I bet they were all thinking. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still stay in touch with your basic trainee folks? Um... A couple. Um, not so much basic training, but even though a lot of us actually went to security forces, but um, there is a few people from tech school who I still talk to almost every day. Awesome. It's interesting how it, I, I don't, I still remember names mm -hmm. from the 30 some odd years ago when I went to basic training. Um, but now your generation is so much better connected than we were mm -hmm. at the time that it's just a little bit easier to stay in touch with the people that you really got close with for a really long period of time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Tech school, that's what really brought you together. You were, uh, yeah, you were in it together. Mm -hmm. It's part of becoming a part of the broader family of the military. You know, everybody learns to rely more on the team than on themselves. So, And you coming in as that lone wolf, I don't think that the training instructor, drill instructor, uh, the person with the round hat on would have appreciated you walking up and down the bay with a wig on. Probably but not. That's what turned you <laughs> into somebody that accepts the family and team mentality of the military mm -hmm. through those shenanigans. It's like, well, I'm going to be here for you know six more weeks. I might as well <laughs> try and get along with people. <laughs> yep, might as well have a little bit of fun. So now you're working flight. You're working a shift on security forces, and the first experience you had with security forces was two people trying to shove one of them into the locker room. Mm -hmm. What's that sense of fun, goofy, you're not wearing a wig walking around in, in your beret and carrying a gun, but you guys still have fun and stuff out on post and do some weird stuff. What's, oh, yeah. What's the weirdest thing you've seen? Oh, man. Uh, that's, geez, there's a lot of weird things. I just make it weird. I got to make it weird and fun. Don't be weird. Don't be bad weird. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, oh, God. Every day I work with Mr. Gaylor, I got to plug some terrible, stupid dad joke in his ear. Uh-huh. I think he appreciates it. I hope uh, he listens to this podcast and knows I'm talking about him. I'm sure he will. Everybody, I'll plug some stupid joke in their ear almost every day. Yeah. Sometimes that levity just kind of keeps everybody going through the day. Mm -hmm. It's only a nine-hour shift. It's not too bad, right? It's not too bad. Yeah. Um. No, you just kind of... You got to make your own fun. I mean, it can be from a super busy day or it can be this the most dull day out there. Uh, there was one day I was on the ramp and it was a Saturday or Sunday. It was a weekend. No nothing was happening. Like, I think there were more security forces on base than anybody else. It was just we were securing ourselves on the mm -hmm. base pretty much. Um, anyway, so I sat there sending like little videos to people on flight of me raiding civilian aircraft landings. And doing commentary. Um, That's genius. Yeah, it was great. You could start a YouTube channel on that. I could make my own podcast. But you could do your own podcast. Exactly. I'd loan you a mic. Okay. <laughs> It'd be a little less intelligent than what's going on here. but uh, Who knows? <laughs> you got you to gotta make your own fun. Um, I, there's been some weird instances that have happened on flight. Some things you know, I've had to write some 1168s for. Yeah. But um, 
that's some of the external weird, but we have our own weird that we just kind of make up and help the day go by. Well, speaking of weird, mm. second half of the podcast, I make it a little bit more weird just because it's kind of fun to do that. We'll get heavy in the first part, and then we'll do um, quick questions. So this, I ask you a question, and you have to answer it with uh, with one or two words, whatever it calls for. Um, oh, boy. Without thinking a whole lot about it. Don't overanalyze the questions. Okay, it's like, what's your favorite color? You can't think that long about that. Oh, um, I'm sorry. I thought the radio was happening. Uh, oh. No. Uh, so I'm just going to ask you some quick questions. First thing that comes in your head, and then I'll just move on to the next one. Sure. S- sound good? <laughs> All right. All right. Guilty pleasure TV show. Oh, man. Trash. Catfish. Bob's Burgers. Okay. Nirvana or Katy Perry? Nirvana. Hmm. Movie that made you cry? Don't cry. Lies. I don't know. Okay. All right. Best drink to order at Starbucks? Brown sugar oat milk latte. Iced. (laughs) I like my frou frou drinks. Yeah. Last concert you went to? What was it? It was... It was either Rise Against or Good Charlotte. I don't remember which one it was, but it was awesome. That explains the Nirvana answer. Mm. Next concert you're going to? Actually, I might go to Miranda Lambert at the State Fair. Okay. Go-to karaoke song? I have never karaokeed once in my life. I'm just a little ashamed of you. Don't be weird. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know I'm outgoing, but I, I'm, in the past, I was a shy kid. I'm going to go with, uh, I was surprised you didn't say I'm too sexy for my shirt, but okay. No, I maybe would. That's fine. Maybe with enough beverages. <sighs> True. Okay, Nobody so. Nobody needs to hear my vocal prowess. Yeah, that's all right. Everybody sings. Some mm. don't sing well, but yeah. it's still fun. Probably Backstreet Boys, I want it that way. That is a good one. Yeah. I'm going to throw some curveballs at you with this music genre nope, thing. Nope, I like it. All right. <laughs> so, can you tell me the drink order at Starbucks again? It's a... Brown sugar... Iced. Iced. Brown sugar oat milk latte. Oof. That's, uh, that's a lot. Some people have the most complex drink order just to impress the barista. Are you one of those? No, sometimes I'll just do like five shots of espresso with some milk in there just because I need help. There you go. This from the <laughs> this from the woman that comes in with an energy drink at this time of the afternoon. Uh, it's only my second. Oh, good for you. Mm, Defender juice. There you go. Yeah, we're a different breed. So you, 36 ago, years ago this week, you weren't even born. Nope. Uh, the world came together around music to raise funds for famine in Africa. It was called Live Aid. You ever hear of it? I have not. Oh, okay. Hmm. Um, so Live Aid, it was a huge event. Lots of people remember it. Um, and they saw it most recently in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. Huh. And I still remember that thing coming on. It was amazing because all these different rock and roll bands came together for a big cause, famine in Africa. What do you think is a cause that the world should come together for today? Mental health, actually. I think um, worldwide it should be... I mean, we have a long ways to go in mental health, even in the professional field with psychiatrists, psychologists, and everything like that. I think we have a long way to go in resources, and we have a long ways to go in knowledge about what resources we do have. So much of it is unknown. So I think it needs to be more... I mean, we're working on it now, but I think funding and just more jobs and availability and openness needs to be surrounding mental health because um so many people can't afford to get their mental health you know checked or just get help for it yeah and there's this huge stigma worldwide about it that oh no that means you're you know you're crazy or you're gonna be on drugs or all of this stuff and, and it's not that there's so many different 
routes you can take to help your mental health, whether it's just like finding coping mechanisms or maybe it is like a pharmaceutical thing for a chemical imbalance. Like uh, there just needs to be more of a widespread availability. And I think that would honestly help a lot of situations worldwide, whether it's violence or suicide rates are awful, especially since COVID, Mm -hmm. depression and anxiety have skyrocketed and people need to learn, you know, coping mechanisms or just have some kind of outlet or some way to get help if they need it. You mentioned COVID and coming out of COVID and, and one of the, and, and we've talked a little bit about the sense of togetherness, that sense of family mm-hmm. and, and being able to recognize if somebody is not um, in a good state in the morning when you show up for work. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we get the world good at that? How do, we, how do we get folks good at talking with one another, having that sense of empathy, having that sense of family and togetherness, um, especially when so many of us are so much more disconnected now than we used to be. Keep talking about it. Yeah. Just keep talking about it. Make it normal. Make it a normal thing to talk about and to confront. It should be an everyday conversation. Like, hey, are you mentally okay? I think the more transparent we are about it, the less the less weird it's going to be, the less taboo it's going to be. Just normalize it. Best advice I've gotten you from from you in this interview. Don't be weird. <laughs> Don't be weird. Yeah. Even when it comes to mental health, which is some people struggle to talk about, we just uh, need to get better at not being weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. And being comfortable with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, what's another cause? So don't go one more deep now. What's another cause the world needs to come together for? Now you guys can be hard questions. Yeah, I know. Does that have to be serious or no? Nope. Mm. It's the second half of the podcast. We don't have to be serious. Man, you really got me on this one. Oh, well. <laughs> okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. give it to you to di- a little bit different way. Sure. How about this? Um, when it comes to the big challenges that we're facing um, as a world, as a global community, coming together, being a part of a family, talking to each other about the problems that we're facing as individuals to make the community a little bit smaller, Um, if I were going to talk to you about my mental health, we could probably have a pretty good conversation about it, you and I, just Mm -hmm. because we have a sense of of closeness Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the shared experience of the the military between the two of us and security forces as a career. What are the shared things that everybody in our global community can come, can feel when it comes to meeting somebody from another country? What is something we all have in common? I think we all, everybody craves, you know, a relationship. Everybody craves trust or just having a sense of having someone by your side. So maybe that's part of like something the world needs to come together on is just building relationships. Because yes, you're con- being able to connect with people is so much more widespread, but I feel like so many more relationships are just face value. So what we gained in, you know, widespreadness of numbers we've lost in maybe those deeper connections. So people people crave connections. We're, we're pack animals. Mm-hmm. One of those uh, times where I felt like, you know, the world got connected. Live Aid was a great way of, of showing, hey, the world can connect and we can all come together as a big global family to overcome a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, I'll keep it light. Okay. So several of the bands that were in Live Aid are still touring, one of which is Queen. I'm a little disappointed you haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody because it was an I awesome I am not movie. good at movies. Well, I'm, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. Um, so Queen is still touring. They're in Antwerp, Belgium tonight, just in oh. case you want to just fly on over there. Uh, they've got a new lead singer, Adam Lambert. You ever hear of him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's doing that now? Interesting. Yeah, he's the lead singer for Queen. It's awesome. He's got a great voice. Uh, he's Known probably 
most no, well known for coming in second in American Idol. Yeah, I remember that season. Yeah, but then rocketing to fame. Uh, guys, it's always the second place person that gets more of the fame. Several of them do. So that's my question for you. So you and Adam Lambert, this is the drinking question because I always have one in the second part. Me and Adam Lambert. Yeah, you share this commonality. He's a coffee guy as well. <laughs> yep. Okay. So he's a big coffee guy, but he also loves tequila. Let's just say you guys are hanging out and you're drinking your brown sugar oat milk oh, for iced hanging out, I'm latte. Okay, then you're having a tequila, right? Love a whiskey. Okay. Mm. He's having tequila. You're having whiskey. You're talking about what is so great about coming in second in things. What do you think you'd come up with? Well, uh, as a person who has come in second a lot. Runner-up champion in women's professional football. Twice, Twice. Several times, yep. And even back in the day when I went to state championships for soccer and everything, second. I've never been... Number one, but that's okay. Oh, okay. What is good about coming in second? You know, you can get better. Yeah? You don't get the that first place big head. Yeah, trophies are nice, but there's always there's always a goal. Second isn't bad. You know you're good. Yeah. Mm. Okay. I mean, you just, you, you're always going to have that drive. If you come in second and be like, well, next year we'll get it. True. You're not going to get beat down over and over for being, you know, in second. You're just always going to have something to strive towards. Is that the best lesson in coming in second? Is you always learn how to strive for things? And you can, I mean, you saw who came in first. You saw what they did to be in first. Now you have a model. And you don't have to worry about rearranging your furniture for that trophy. So that you got that going for you too, which is nice. I look better in silver. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, hey, I want to thank you for coming in, building a little bit more depth in the connection that we share out here. It's been a great conversation, Andrew. It's a good time. Keep doing good things. I'll try my best. Just try not to be weird. Bad weird. Bad weird. Gotcha. Ah. Hey, uh, please join me again next time on Beneath the Wing. Uh, I'll have another awesome guest connected to the 133rd Airlift Wing. So tune in next time.